you can record me saying this if you want because okay. it'd, it'd entertain everybody. Mm-hmm. So I am doing a reading tonight, and I've forgotten to bring Fell. And I you see you want to borrow mine. I do, and I will post it back to you. I promise. Please do because can this I is, borrow it? This is a collector's item because it doesn't have the birds on the front. No, it doesn't. It yeah. doesn't. This is the proof. So I will borrow it. I will not crease it. I will okay. not weep into it. Yeah. And I'll post it back to you. Hello, my name is Rob Cutforth and this is The End of All Things. Um, Today I am coming to you from inside my home office again. Um, I know you like it better when I'm outside, but uh, the interview with Jen takes place on Canal Street, so you'll get your hit of outdoorsy Manchester, but the weather's fucking terrible outside again. um, I am looking outside my window at my neighbors. And I know I've talked about Ermston before, uh, but it's very suburbanite. And I'm right now it's Pam and... Oh, I always forget my actual neighbors' names. Elaine and Paul. Pam has lived on this street since before the war, or during the war. Some, something about the war. It's so odd to think that someone would live in the same place for that long. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're probably chatting about schools or something tedious like that. That's what people in Ermston talk about. Schools seem to be important to people who have kids, um, and getting in good schools. Uh, I suppose you have to really worry about that sort of thing in this country where the school system is bullshit. Uh, why am I talking about that? doesn't matter. Um, this is the famous... Jen Ashworth episode. I say famous. Uh, it's only because I've been talking about it for months. Uh, because we recorded this last March on St. Patrick's Day, weirdly. Um, and I've only been able to give it to you now because this co- kicks off her big book tour for her new book, Fell. Uh, so yeah, I'm number one, man. Numero uno. This is the first time she she's ever spoken about this book, uh, except for the times when she was on stage. But This is the first time that it's, I think, been recorded or written about. I'm the first person on the list. I've seen her book tour thing and uh, The End of All Things right at the top. Sounds like I'm bragging, doesn't it? (laughs) It's because I am. Uh, Except for that pesky Savage Reads who decided... I don't even know what his first name is, Savage. Uh, He decided to talk about the book before me, cheeky bugger. Uh, I'd be really pissed off, except... I really kind of love his videos. Uh, I don't know if you've seen them, but he broadcasts from in front of like this giant bookshelf. And um, why why am I bigging him up? He has enough subscribers. He's got way more than I do. Uh, I will warn you a bit. Our conversation about Jen's book gets a bit spoilery in places. So if you want to go into the book cold... Uh, perhaps you should go read it now and come back after you're done. I'll wait. Good? Good. I'm glad we've got that over with. Oh my god, what a great book, right? My favorite bit is the part when the spaceship comes down and tractor beams the fuck out of Earth. So unexpected, right? I'm not sure if I'm going to leave that bit in. I wrote that down. I wrote that joke down and realized it's, it's, it is shit, isn't it? Uh, I am rubbish at talking about books, which is why I write a joke instead to cover that. Luckily, Jen is very good at it, so I'm going to let her, and actually Savage Reads, if you want to go Google his video uh, about the the books. I, and he's done about three or four videos since the one he, where he talks about Fell, because he's prolific, and uh, he gets sent quite a lot of books, so he has to go through them all. I don't get sent quite as many as he does. Uh... Which is good because I can't read very fast. Why am I even talking about that? It doesn't matter. I've stopped, I'm stopping talking about his bloody podcast. I'm a bit obsessed with it at the moment just because he seems like a really lovely guy. Anyway, um, uh, what do we talk about? In this interview, we, in addition to the usual kind of writery tips and tricks type stuff, the stuff, uh, the advice for new writers, 
I mean, we do talk about that sort of thing in this podcast a lot. If you've not listened to the podcast before, if you're only listening to this because Jen is involved, um, we the new writer stuff comes up quite a lot. Um, and especially in this one, because Jen, in addition to writing novels, is uh, does a lot of mentoring. Uh, she's also a lecturer, just like every other novelist. Um, she's a lecturer at Lanca- Lancaster University. Uh, we talk about that. And um, obviously, we talk about the book. I also get to talk to Jen about her, her really. Um, we talk about... Mormonism, which is quite interesting. We both have Mormons in the family, in our families. I in the family, like Jen and I are related, in our own separate families. Uh, her, she's more Mormony than I am. Uh, I have one relative uh, who was a Mormon, my great grandfather, um, but he was quite a big deal in the Mormon Church. I think he, I think Mormons actually know him because he actually lived in Salt Lake City and. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about Mormonism, but I think it's quite a hierarchical hierarchical thing. We talk about that in the podcast. I'm not going to talk too much about it now. But he's, I don't know, he was a bit of a big deal. Um, And my grandma, as a result, was a Mormon. And my grandfather, thankfully, wasn't. I flat out asked her if she was still a Mormon. And uh, she said no, which was great, because then we could actually talk about it I'm not saying that she couldn't have talked about it, even if she was a practicing Mormon still. But, I, you know, I think you're less likely to be honest about it if you're still, you know, doing God's work. (laughs) I wasn't going to talk about Brexit again, but I can't stop. It just keeps getting worse and worse, doesn't it? Um, You know what's really weird about this whole Brexit thing, besides the fact that I now despise all old people. Well, all not, not Pam next door. She's great. She puts my bins away when I'm away. And she and that's not some really awful <laughs> euphemism. Um, and she's, you know, a lovely person. And I don't think she voted Brexit. Um, I, I really hope she doesn't. She hasn't. She's right now. However, she is. She's got this this very second. She's got this like long armed clipper thing that she's clipping around her flower beds. Um, and she's doing this despite having uh, a really bad hip. And she's been waiting for ages for this hip replacement, um, which is terrible. And she puts my bins away because I work for a living. And if she didn't put them away, they would sit out on the end of my driveway all day. And I can't figure out whether she's doing it out of the goodness of her heart because she thinks, oh, well, we don't want people to know that there's no one in his house when he's away because it might get burgled or if she's just doing it because it annoys her that there's something mis- out, you know, out of place on the street. Um, she takes, however, if she wasn't here, the street would probably fall into massive decay and decline. So I hope Pam didn't vote Brexit. Why am I talking about her? Because I have this all this whole, all this stuff about how much I hate old people. And yet here I am talking about how much I like Pam. Why did she have to be out just now? I wouldn't have talked about her at all. Um, in addition to the fact that now I hate all old people, I also couldn't enjoy the Euros. Um, at the start of the tournament, I was very excited about little whales. Uh, not just making the tournament, but also doing very well. Uh, but after Brexit and the fact that Wales resoundedly voted to, to leave, I just kept silently wishing Gareth Bale's head would fall off. I watched England's match against Iceland in a pub in uh, Wimbledon. Yes, I got tickets to the tennis this year. More on that in a minute. Um, But while I was watching the football in the pub, surrounded by all these English meatheads, I almost died of schadenfreude. Um, Can you actually die of it? Uh, They were, you know, English football fans in various states of distress. And all I could think of was good that's what you get, you Brexit fucks. Because you just know football fans, they, they probably postal voted. They've never voted for anything in their lives, the morons. Made a point of doing a postal, a postal vote so that their vote was counted. And then flew over to Europe to watch the Euros. I bet it's thousands of them. I bet you loads of them did. 
Anyway, Wales. I'm glad you're out. Good. Um, the problem is, it didn't feel quite as good with Wales when they went out because they still seem quite pleased with themselves, which is really annoying. You know, come talk to me next year when Theresa May has a giant dump on your town, Swansea. We'll see how much you care about the how well your football team did in a European tournament. Anyway, Cardiff is okay. You guys voted Remain, didn't you? I feel a bit sorry for Cardiff, actually, because they... Well, I don't feel too sorry, because we're in the same boat. I still can't believe that Trafford voted to Remain. How can Trafford... We're, we're Tories. Fuck this part of the world. Um, we voted to Remain, and other places didn't. Anyway, whatever. You know, Cardiff, good for you. Rest of Wales, get bent. Stop talking about Brexit. This is your big podcast with the famous writer person on. Stop talking about Brixham. My wife got us Wimbledon tickets this year in the ballot. Um, it's actually the second time we've been successful, and I know that it probably pisses a lot of people off. Um, but I have to say, I could really get used to the whole Wimbledon thing. Um, this year, weirdly, it's been sick with Toff trips. Uh, first the Hay Festival and now Wimbledon. Um, the Wimbledon Toffs, though, seem marginally better in the style department than at Hay. I didn't see any aquamarine corduroy and uh, no ascots, surprisingly. I expected to see a lot more ascots than I did. However, I did see a few too many pinstriped suit jackets. But all in all, Wimbledon wasn't the uh, Toff hellscape I'd imagined. In fact, it was almost pleasant, like the people. Um, Very civilized, but not too civilized. Uh, Surprisingly down to earth. And a bit rowdy, which was quite nice. However, way too many people cheering for Roger Federer. What the fuck is that all about? It's like going to a casino and cheering for the house. People dressed up in his clothes with a big RF on their shirts. They're not even Swiss people. They're English people. And people from other countries who have come specifically to cheer for Roger Federer. Why do you do that? Yes, I I want to cheer for the greatest tennis player of all time to win. I would literally cheer for anyone but Roger Federer. And it's not just because, well, it is. You know, you want an underdog to win. And Roger Federer, he's got this reputation like he is some really nice guy. But no nice guy has ever worn a shirt with his own initials on it. I can't get past that. We didn't get to see um, my boy Ranich because our tickets were actually too good. We got tickets to center court. And he was on, I think, court two or three. Um, but th- this might be the big year, which is a bit dis- disappointing because I'll say I was actually at Wimbledon the year Ranich won the thing, but I didn't get to see him, which is slightly annoying. But the final is on in a couple of hours and he plays Andy Murray, which would have been pretty great. I literally cannot lose in this match because if Ranich wins, Canada gets its first Wimbledon champion. And if Murray wins, it's another two fingers at the Brexiters. Enjoy him while you can, Britain, because uh, perhaps this time next year he'll be playing for another country. Didn't fucking think of that, did you? Ugh, breaks it. Please, please, God, and BBC, whichever one's more powerful, do not let Greg motherfucking Rosetsky anywhere near a microphone during the final. Hey, Greg, turns out you don't need to be a traitor in order to get to a Wimbledon final. Maybe it would be good if he got on the microphone, but only if he's honest about how much this is really pissing him off that someone who grew up in Canada and plays for Canada has gone on and become a a much better tennis player than he ever was, even though he sold out his own country because he thought it would help his tennis career. I can't believe how many people come to me and say, oh, Greg Rosetsky, you must have been a Greg Rosetsky. Of course I'm not a fucking Greg Rosetsky fan. Why the fuck would I cheer for him? (laughs) While I'm at it, Owen Hargreaves... I'm glad your knee exploded and that your career was cut short. I said it. Maybe next time you'll play for your own country instead of all the other ones. I suppose Milos Raonic, sure, he was born in Montenegro and came over to Canada because, you know, that place was a mess when he was a kid, to say the absolute least. Um, and he's, But he's been... With us, I say us, like I'm a big Canadian now. I've lived in Britain for 10 years. He's been in Canada since he was three, um, which means he wasn't, I suppose he wasn't born with a poutine fork in his mouth, but there was definitely maple syrup on his baby bib. 
And uh, so, yeah, he's about, he's, he's Canadian as it gets, really. And guess what, Britain? His family were gasp, immigrants, the horror. Uh, if you vote for Andrea Leadsom, if you're like a conservative member, uh, party member, and you vote for Andrea Leadsom, I just don't even know what I'll do. How can, can you believe the situation we're in? I'm actually hoping Theresa May becomes the PM of this country. How, how did this happen? You did this to us, Bolton and Sheffield and Swansea. Let's see how many mines Teresa or Andrea open back up. I don't even know if Bolton has mines. Do they have mines? However, whatever it is, whatever it is that you like, Bolton, I can tell you with absolute certainty that whatever it is that you do like or you do want, neither Teresa or Andrea are going to give it to you. Are they? Look what you've done. Plus, your football team sucks, Bolton. Stop talking about Brexit. Stop talking about Brexit. Um, the funny thing about this podcast is that I don't think any of the interviewees, the people I talk to, actually listen to it until their episode comes on, uh, which is funny. I'm just imagining Jen listening to this and getting to it at this point and go, what? Why is he going on about Brexit? I thought this was a podcast about writing. Ah, it is, sort of. Um, our interview takes place on Canal Street. Uh, did I mention that already? I think I did. Uh and in case you aren't actually from Manchester, Canal Street is basically the gay area. Uh, so you hear gay sounds in the background, which, incidentally, are exactly like other sounds. Um, however, there are a couple, there's a pair of really loud gays ch chatting at the... Oh, see, that was going to be my funny joke and I ruined it. Um, there, <laughs> there are a couple of loud gays chatting... Oh, fuck, I did it again. <laughs> I think I might just abandon that joke. There were a couple of loud gays chatting at the next table. You see, it's not even a funny joke. They might not even have been gay. It's just saying loud gays seems funny to me. Uh, Canal Street must also be the street to walk down when you've come back home from somewhere else because there are loads of people walking past us dragging suitcases. Um, I think it makes a lovely kind of rattly sound that builds and builds and builds until they get past us and then they go away and then it kind of fades away. But it might annoy you. Uh, because Canal Street, in addition to being gay, is also cobbled. So, yeah, get used to that sound, because it happens quite a lot. Also, there's a small explosion at some point, and, of course, the ever-present Manchester sirens, as someone is probably having a heart attack or getting stabbed. Uh, one of my favorite things about Canal Street is it has my favorite vandalized street sign on it, the Canal Street sign that has the C and the S scratched off. Go on, think about it for a second. Ah, got it. You see, it's good, right? <laughs> Wonderful. Um, it's even better than the person who sticks uh, the fracking stickers or hammer time to the bottom of stop signs. Um, I think the thing I love most about vandalized street signs is how much it probably pisses off the old people that live in the surrounding areas. These signs are important. We need these. Some vandal. Get a life, Grandma. Um, yeah, like I say, old people get no love on this podcast anymore. Except Pam. Um, even Jen is at it. Just wait until you hear how much she laughs at my grandma's actual maiden name in this podcast. I mean, she's my grandma. She's like 75. Jen has no problem with that. Laughs her ass off. Thinks the last name is very funny. Because she's a monster. She's not really. It is a really funny last name. Uh, the interview's lovely. Jen's lovely, as usual. And life is lovely. Lol. Um, she does a reading at the end. So once you finish listening to my nonsense now, and then listening to her insightful chat, and then some more of my nonsense, you'll hear her do a bit of a reading from Phil. So there you go. Uh, this is her and I talking about her new amazing novel fell on canal street listen have you uh, talked about the book yet is this the first time 
Yes, it is. It is yes. the first time. I've talked about it a little bit at university, so there have been kind of various works in progress type sessions where we've discussed what we're up to, but as yeah. a finished, done thing that I can now do nothing about, no. Wow, very exciting. <laughs> You're in here first, so you'll get all the unpolished answers. Excellent. Which is good. I've read the first four chapters since I got, the te- the, uh, got it on Tuesday. Uh, yeah, Tuesday, so two days. So what happens up until chapter four? You'll have to remind me which bit are you up to. I'm up to... They are... Um, it's the, I think they're still on the beach holiday. Okay. And uh, she's... What did I just read last night? I just read it last night, so I should be able to remember that exactly. Well, the I wrote it, and I don't know what's in yeah. chapter four. <laughs> yeah. Or is it chapter three? It, they're basically... Oh, I know. No, no, no. It's uh, Tom has just come for dinner. Okay. He's just, ent- okay. He's just come into the building. Okay. He's, he's done the... Uh, I don't know how much of the plot we can actually talk about. Wow. How much well, is secret, but go on then. I guess it's out there. The yeah. proofs have been out, so I guess it's not too secret. So, mm. so the book is called Fell, yep. and it is set... Primarily in 1963, okay. in Grange over Sands, which is a little town that kind of spoons the top end of Morecambe Bay. Okay. And it is about um, oh god, I get. <laughs> it's about two, a fat <laughs> mother and father it's about, who yeah, died. It is okay. So it's it's about um, it's about <laughs> loss. It's about grief. Mm-hmm. It's about um, hope in the face of mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, plot-wise, it begins with Annette coming back to her family house, which is, she's not been there for years, and it's old and it's decrepit, and she's gone back and she wants to, to do it up and sell it. Um, and while she's there, living alone, um, it becomes clear that she's not alone, that the ghosts of her parents are there, and they're watching over her. They are worried about her. Um, and they're worried about her because she's alone, because she has no money, she's not leading the kind of life that they would have hoped for for her. And they remember and they re-experience the events that happened in the summer of 1963 when Annette, who is um, kind of the main player in the book, yep. was a little girl. She was just eight years old and her mother, Nettie, was dying. She has cancer and the book that action starts at the point where her medical treatment has stopped the doctors have kind of washed their hands of her and sent her home and her family are taking her out on days out and trying to make her have happy days and happy memories of her mother and Tim appears Timothy Richardson is a kind of angel in disguise they they meet him and he is a I guess you might say a faith healer or a faithless healer. And he claims or implies that he can heal Nettie, that he can fix her. Right. And so he moves into their house as a lodger and he lives with them. And the, the book is largely about the period of time that he lived with her and him attempting to heal Nettie and about the effect that had on that little family relationship of the mum and the dad and mm-hmm. the little girl. And it's also about the way that cancer in particular but illness and mortality more generally how we speak to children about that or how we don't speak to children about that and the after effects that that might cause in an adult's life yeah it's interesting because the way you set it up I don't don't, if you don't want this out what I'm going to say now as a plot I don't don't think it's a plot spoiler okay but it's interesting the, the way that you actually have him do something to the father first yeah. to convince yeah. him that his faith healing yeah. works but it wasn't he didn't ask for it no he just got it mm-hmm. and, which would say that it's it tells the reader anyway that it, mm. it, there's a chance that it's for real yeah I wanted to establish that quite early on that he can do it yeah and I also wanted to establish Tim as quite an unpredictable mercurial character so yeah. the question isn't can he do it but it is, will he do it? Is mm. he going to do it? Yeah. And this power that he has, that he uses in various ways, mainly for his own benefit, yeah. he's, he's no altruist. No, and, for and money as well. Like, yeah, yeah, not, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, and that his ambition is to be 
to be ordinary, to be successful, mm-hmm. to successful in quite a middle class way. He wants a mm-hmm. house, he wants a family, he wants to yeah. fit in, and yeah. this power that he's got is more of an impediment to that. Yeah. And um, so he's quite an unusual character. Yeah, and he's. Uh, I think that's quite a common thing for someone that grows up working class. To, that's the, their idea and we, I don't know if he's like that yet yeah. because I've not gone to that bit but. he's very um, he tells lots of different stories about his background mm. and we don't find out too much about it and what he does say may or may not be true right um, so he's from Edinburgh yeah. apparently <laughs> or he can do quite a good Scottish accent yeah he tells um, he tells Jack that he was involved in the medical school and he tells some of the other lodgers in the house that he used to work in a woolen mill and that he's mm-hmm. interested in becoming a tailor. Mm-hmm. He tells someone else that he lived in a high-rise, that he used to do um, sex work with um, sailors, Merchant Navy, <laughs> in, in Leith. So he's got lots of different stories about his past, all of which may or may not be true. Right. Yeah, kind of, unreliable. He does, he breezes into their lives and they never really find out any more about him than we do. Yeah. I think the first thing I noticed when I started reading this is that it requires, uh, and I think it's the same with most of your books, like real immersion in the text, especially this one because it's like an omniscient narrator. You're, not, you're just bouncing from each other's, not just back and forth in time, mm. but also between everyone's heads. Yeah. So uh, I think it, for me anyways, it, uh, once you get it, it's great, and because the voices, I think, are, are very good. But it's, it's uh, from, for a dunce like me, it, it takes a while to, you know, get a hold of that. And it's, it's not a book that I don't think that, well, unless it changes, that you can uh, read, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Casually. <laughs> I guess for a dunce like me, it was quite hard <laughs> to pull off, mm. to, to bring together. I had, you know, Timothy Richardson, the the butcher's boy from Scotland, was was the character that came to me first, and I knew that he was able to see into other people's memories and their pasts. And I also knew that I wanted these spirits, the parents, to narrate as well. So there's two mm-hmm. kinds of omniscience that kind of bounce off each other. And it, it came to me, that structure, that technique that I was trying came from the subject matter I thought about healing and I thought about what it must be like to use your your body or your influence on someone else's body and right. it's a kind of violation of boundaries as well as a helping yeah and I thought about the place as well I thought about Grange over Sands and Morecambe Bay mm-hmm. which isn't sea and it's not river mm-hmm. and it's not land and it's not water and <laughs> um, it's a very shifting place very you know a dangerous place where you can get lost where you can get sucked into the sand yeah and i wanted the narrative technique to come from that to come from what the landscape felt like to me yeah it'll be interesting i i immediately wondered whoops if uh we'll get when he does actually start the healing or if he, if he does i don't even know yet <laughs> if he does or not but if he does if we get the perspective from both of them mm. That, that'd be quite an interesting... Because yeah. that's the thing, when you, you have an omniscient narrator, you can really play with that, can't yeah. you? Yeah. It was... Well, without giving too much away, <laughs> I was very interested in what it would feel like to be on the receiving end of healing, as well as what it would like, what it would be like to be the person who dishes it out, what yeah. it would feel like physically, mm-hmm. and what it would what it would do to you to, to know that you could do that to know that other people wanted it that yeah. they didn't necessarily want you they wanted yeah. this magic charm that you had yeah. and what it would be like to be someone desperate absolutely desperate yeah um, so yeah and, and, and always wondering whether like you say whether people want him for him or yeah. for well they, it's not clearly they don't yeah. care about him and yet he's very charismatic mm. and, and there's you know people fancy him everyone fancies him mm-hmm. um, Nettie <laughs> wants him to be the son the boy that she never had she <laughs> adores him yeah. Jack is extremely taken with him very physically in ways that he doesn't really yeah. have words for um, that's established uh, yeah, right away yeah. poor Jack is yeah. completely dumbfounded um, <laughs> by the effect that this beautiful young man has on him but that works really well because you don't actually you're not entirely sure if he's been if it's a healing thing or if it's just an infatuation thing where yeah. ooh, I've been touched 
a man for the first time. Crikey. <laughs> Yikes. I think that was a car and not a shooting. I think it might have been in a balloon. Oh, okay. St. Patrick's Day balloon. That would be some local colour in the Yeah. <laughs> it's one way to call it, one thing to call it. Yeah, I, I suppose that feeling of um, sexual desire and being desired and being the object that is desired and what that feels like, it, it felt like it mapped quite nicely onto healing and being healed. Yeah, yeah. And both of those things are states don't think we really do have very good words for yeah she Nettie uh, I, like I say I'm only four chapters in but Nettie reminded me of my my mum really like uh, creepily almost <laughs> everyone's uh, mum I hope yeah <laughs> uh, well she because because uh, like, my mum was very beach like smoking on the beach yeah that's, that's just a picture I've, I've got of mm. my childhood all mm-hmm. the time just really casual and I think it's um, you know letting your kids run around and have you know freedom of the place rather yeah. than you know but um is and this is such a stupid question I'm going to ask you anyway is any of the are any of the characters like from your do they have any of the characteristics of your own family no no yeah. no I knew I you were going to say that well, I don't know why I, I asked it I do I mean I don't I guess I do write autobiographically in that all the books come from themes that are immediately of concern to me but yeah. I don't really take people I think all of my books have got a writer in them mm. somewhere yeah. I think in Cold Light Donald was very clearly the the Mary Sue writer <laughs> <Yeah>. character <laughs> um, I think Tim is the writer oh, right. I think he yeah, is yeah. this idea of something that you can do and you're not sure whether yeah. it's a good thing to do or not yeah and, yeah um, so, but then I can't say that I am like any of these characters, yeah. um, or that the characters are like my family. I, I'm, I was really interested in creating Nettie, especially with that early 1960s setting, and it's set 1963, which is supposed to be the year that sex was invented. Right. Uh, the swinging 60s, but yeah, it's yeah. also set in Grange over Sands, and the swinging 60s didn't reach yeah. rural Cumbria until maybe 1985. <laughs> um, so from, the, from the, the outside, they have quite a 1950s relationship. Mm-hmm. And yet, so they run a lodging house, but actually Nettie is the one who does most of the work. She runs the business, she does the books. She's actually got quite a lot of power in that relationship. Mm-hmm. And because she's ill and she gradually becomes more and more unable to do that kind of work we see Jack becoming more helpless and having to do more domestic Mm -hmm. work so I was quite interested in terms Mm -hmm. of gender roles about what that would look like and what it would look like in the 60s yeah especially because if she's like that she's kind of got a 60s mentality and uh, 50s family yeah. yeah there's a bit where um, she, she becomes you know, progressively more ill and Jack has to start doing the shopping and he goes out to buy uh, I don't know he gets sausages or something and he says he feels embarrassed at walking through the streets with a shopping bag like a woman crazy but then there's an, you know there's another part where he's in the pub and he's talking to one of his ex-lodgers and the ex-lodger's talking about being able to iron and being able to sew mm-hmm. and saying he'd learnt this during his national service. Oh, yeah, he'd, so he's manly now. You're yeah, allowed to, yeah. He'd learn it in the army, and he said yeah. the army had made a right girl out of him. Yeah. So I think <laughs> work and domestic work has always been of a lot of interest to me through yeah. all my novels, and it was really nice to be able to examine that in a different context because yeah. it's the first novel I've written that hasn't been set. Yeah, I always now. think... It, yeah, I always think it's really interesting, the idea of... Uh, investigating what happens when so, uh, one one person in the relationship dies, yeah. um, and to the point where I think a lot of people would think, "God, I hope my grandfather dies first. And I know it's a horrible thought yeah. to have, but because yeah. if he if my grandma dies first, yeah. you know, you're in, yeah. and you know, I think that's quite an interesting thing. There's almost yeah. a reason why men don't live as long as women. <laughs> well, in the old days, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's it's a real. I mean, it's of interest to me as a novelist. You know, I write about the family. My my casts of characters are normally quite small. The seconds are usually domestic. Mm-hmm. And I'm very interested in the way that we depend on each other and the way that affects our work and our relationships, and especially in nuclear families. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, yeah, because that's, that's the shape of the one that I grew up in. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um... 
Oh, that's another stupid question. Go on, ask them. Let's get them out of the way. Right. <laughs> this is it, this is a personal one, okay. and I, whether I even let it in or not, it's personal for me because okay. it's something that always intrigues me, and it's such a stupid thing. But I always want to know, whenever I talk to uh, a novelist, when they dedicate a novel. Okay. Who's Sky? Sky. Sky's my daughter. Ah, right. She is. Yeah. And it is a book about parental guilt. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that leads so well into my next question. And I guess that's about all I'm going to say about that. But uh, ask, me, ask me your next one anyway. Okay, my next question is, because uh, I know you, and yes. it's not just, you're, you're not just a novelist. Um, you do quite a lot of things. You do, you've got uh, a job. I do. <laughs> a a do. paid job. You need money. I do indeed. At the Lancaster University. Yes. And... That's not enough. You also do loads of mentoring, mm-hmm. and you've written a book of essays. I'm working on it. I'm working work- on it. I've not done it yet. Right, okay, well, we won't talk about that bit. We'll pretend okay. that we didn't, I didn't even okay. mention it. Okay. If you could make enough money from writing alone, would you give up the other stuff? Like, would you, do you think that does working in a university and mentoring, does that help your own writing, do you think? Even in a perfect world. Okay. In an absolutely perfect world, I would combine writing and teaching. Yeah. Definitely. There are other things to do with university work that aren't teaching that I would like to drop. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there are administrative and reporting responsibilities that are, everyone finds them dull, no one wants to do them. Um, I don't tend to take on teaching or mentoring work that I don't find valuable so I'm in a, a lucky enough position that I can kind of choose the additional yeah. things that I do but I would I would always teach definitely mm. I've always sought to have day jobs where I'm talking to other people about books and about writing I used yeah. to be a librarian and I find that really stimulating mm. I think there's a bit of a myth that writers you know go up into a garret and type for a bit and then yeah they come down after this period of solitude and there's their work of genius but Mm. I feel like I need a life that involves some kind of collaboration some kind of you know dialogue and conversation teaching is a really good way of doing that for me yeah um you probably don't know this actually but it's your mentoring for my stuff which kind of actually made me think that I could be a writer um I've written loads of other stuff like essays and articles mm-hmm. and stuff but as far as fiction is concerned mm-hmm. you're the first person that like you know proper novelist that looked at my stuff and I remember when you sent me the stuff back um, when you were mentoring me yeah. uh, I remember getting the email and thinking I don't want to open it <laughs> just I in case I feel like that when I get emails from my editor <laughs> yeah and I opened it up and I think your first sentence was this book is very good and I just went right, okay that's fine I can read the rest of it now so even you know even when you, even when you read the, the stuff that you need to hear yeah uh, you think well that's okay she, she, she did like it that's good There's, there is some value in, in it so. but I get emails like that and I send my work to people who you know unofficially or officially mentor me and who send me emails that begin with I like this but mm-hmm. here are some things to think about and I I think that is an absolutely essential and ordinary part of the writing process. There's something to do with the publicity, I think, that writers do when they're on the circuit and flogging the book that tends to to clean up the drafts and clean up failure and clean up the impact that other people and that teaching and that reading and Mm -hmm. that the editor has had on the book. And I think because I'm a teacher, I... I'm reluctant to participate in that cleaning up. I think it's a little bit dishonest. Yeah. So, I get, when it, you mentioned to me over Twitter that, you know, pre-publication time. <laughs> the horror. Yeah, the horror. Yeah. It's stressing, which surprised me, because like, you just think, well, this is your fourth book. You're not, you know, it's still <coughs> an exciting time. It's not, you're not blasé and jaded about the whole thing yet. Not jaded, that's, a, that's the wrong word. It's, it, it, it's, the f- it's the fourth book. Yeah. But it's the first fell. Right. <laughs> it, they're always different, and yeah. I don't... It does have a different name on the top, but it's the same one on the bottom, though. Yeah. So... It, yeah, yeah, I guess it's still me. You must, for now, you must by now think that I know how to write a novel. Well, there are techniques that I am confident that I can employ to, yeah. you know, greater or, or lesser effect, but... 
there's not a you know no, it's a new thing a novel a new thing so I don't know how to do if yeah. I knew how to do it it wouldn't be a novel right you know when I start if I think I know what I'm doing it means I've done it before yeah and I wouldn't want to insult a reader by giving them something yeah. they could get yeah so do you do a lot of research then yeah a lot of research and a lot of drafting a lot yeah. most of my novels I, I write drafts and drafts and drafts and every draft involves throwing away most of what was written before yeah. and almost starting again mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to show anyone work very early work I like to be edited and I like to have feedback but very early work it's it's draft zero it's almost broken English and yeah. if someone asked me what, what did you want to achieve here I wouldn't know I wouldn't be able yeah. to tell them I have to kind of inch forward in the dark yeah well you do your drafts quite quickly because it's, mm. it's not been that long in between since Cold Light has it was it two three years Friday Gospels was the Friday last, Gospels sorry yeah. no no Friday Gospels was the last one and that was 2013 god was it that long ago I was at the launch yeah, I should were, remember you were yeah the snowy that's right yeah. snowy launch but by the time it was launched I had already been writing Fell for a really? few months because okay. there's a big gap yeah. you know you sell the book and then you give it to your publisher and yeah. there's a kind of machinery or process that they have to do before publication yeah. so there's always it's quite a it's a strange lull because I don't you know, now I'm working on something else because yeah. Fell is finished. But it's I'm, incredible. It's strange. It is, yeah, it is. it's weird. The, the weirdest thing, one of the most disappointing things that I've learned since I've been talking to writers, like established <laughs> novelists, is that your next work is not guaranteed to be published. It doesn't matter how good your last one was. It's almost like starting again. Yeah, yeah. Which I find incredible. Yeah. So some of it is to do with sales and your publisher. It's a business. They're mm-hmm. going to want to know that they can recoup their investment in you. And I yep. think perhaps some of it is to do with being able to find a way of writing a novel that will not repeat what you've done but appeal to people who like the kind of thing that you do. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we're supposed to think about that or not mm. um, or worry about it or let it affect the work. And I, I guess it's, you know, we're freelancers. I don't work my publisher I make something and I hope that someone's going to buy it yeah and so it puts you in common with a lot of other freelancers yeah it's, a, it's just an incredible um, leap of faith yeah because it's not something you can do overnight no and no. I, I would think you know I think most new writers think that once I get one then it's a gravy train from then on in <laughs> but it's I know I did <laughs> <laughs> well no it's not like that but having said that if my publisher said here is a contract for 10 books we would like you to give us a book every I don't know every two years mm. um, I don't know I, would, I think I might feel like I worked in a factory yeah I think I might yeah yeah unless it was like for a million pounds I could probably get <laughs> yeah, over it yeah. pretty quickly having yeah. said that I, I'd probably be able to choke that one down yeah <laughs> <laughs> do you find it more difficult uh, getting new works published living in the north do you think does that have any bearing on it at all because you think that I know coming from a different country really feels to me like it's very London centric Um, I have really no idea because I've never done it any other way Um, my publishers have always been London based my agent is London based Mm -hmm. most of the editing most of the work I do is done over email in terms of publicity you know it's two hours on the train Mm -hmm. So I've not found it to be too much of a hindrance. Mm -hmm. I wonder if I was based nearer to where the action is, it might have made a difference in terms Mm -hmm. of knowing the right people. But I don't think if I did live nearer to where the action is, I'd be turning up for that sort of thing either. I'm not sure. So I have no idea. Yeah. I wonder, I always wonder if it, if, especially when it comes to awards, mm. whether that sort of thing, uh, well, saying that you've had, you've got a Betty Trask, yeah. um, whether those are more likely to go to Southern Red, just because they're in the middle of it all. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. And I, I, I think awards are very nice if you get them. Yeah. But really none of us do it for that reason. Yeah. It's not something I think too much about um, when it happens and when it happens to my friends it's nice and mm. when it doesn't you know, yeah. the book is still there it's 
Yeah, I, I don't think about it too much. Yeah. Maybe if I lived closer to the action, I would think about it more, and maybe thinking about it more would be a bit inhibiting. Mm. Maybe. Yeah. What do What do you have to do now in the run up to your book? Like, is it? I I just have this like lovely vision that it's just you know dinners and coffees and being wooed by interviewers and newspapers but it's just it's just nothing like that at all is it what do you, what is pre-publication like okay so that because is this is a this is a podcast that's kind of geared towards kind of new writers and stuff okay so, so that's why these questions are coming I should probably tell you that no no that's fine so pre-publication so you you would finish the book you would work on structural edits with your editor and once that was all signed out it go you think you're done mm-hmm. and then it goes to a copy editor and there's another round of tweaks and tidying ups and then it goes to a proofreader mm-hmm. and you check the proofs and then the proof is published mm-hmm. and you are asked well I am, I am asked um, I don't know if all publishers do it the same <laughs> to fill in a very long detailed questionnaire about um, you know how you would describe the book in 100 words how you would describe it in 250 words yeah. yourself your hobbies any interesting things about you you are willing to talk about mm-hmm. any any hook um, any journalists that you know journalists that have interviewed you in the past literary festivals you've previously appeared at mm-hmm. a big list of things which then publicity takes and mm-hmm. uses to make a marketing plan Right, and that you do have some influence over the marketing plan. You can say, right, I'm not going to talk about X, Y, and Z, or I'm not going to do this, or whatever. And they kind of make this marketing plan, and then let you know what they would like you to do and where you would like to be. Mm. And it's all it's all a bit of a surprise. You know, you get an email and say, can you turn up to this? And yeah, you do or you don't. <laughs> the the I you know. So at the stage I'm at right now is that the proofs are just being sent out, and they're going out to to reviewers, to other writers, to, to bloggers, and I am living my ordinary life, doing mm. teaching and eating yeah. cornflakes, <laughs> yeah. and you know pushing the trolley around Morrison's, yeah. and hanging up laundry with the awareness that this thing that's been in my yeah. head for three years is now in other people's hands, yeah. and that that is weird. It is. Yeah, I bet it is. <laughs> but we're still a long way before the book comes out yeah. is in bookshops Ian McEwen called the publicity side of things he said it was like being employed by a former self <laughs> and I think that's right because yeah. what I'm working on now is, is different and it's a different project and mm-hmm. I'll have to put myself back into the head of the person who made Fell yeah that's interesting so how long how long ago was it the, this, the main story finished other than the edits that you've had to do like um, the, the, the kind of October, there. November. Yeah. So you're when you say you're writing on some, you're writing something new now. You mean another novel rather than no? It's the essays. Yes. Right. I'm working on a collection of lyric essays. Mm-hmm. It's the best name I can think of mm-hmm. to describe them because it is a term that allows you to do quite a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So they are partly a kind of criticism and um, cultural literary criticism mm-hmm. partly some autobiography some memoir partly some speculative fiction Ooh. about what might have happened in my life if oh, things had gone a different it sounds yeah. very solipsistic actually yeah. the way I'm describing <laughs> it it's better than it sounds yeah. I hope <laughs> um, and, and there's a kind of loose theme so it's it's about trauma and wounding and it's about Reading, and it's about writing and creative process, and it's also about religious experience. Right. And those three themes, I think, have cropped up in all of my fiction: the idea of of wounding and injury and illness mm-hmm. and trauma, and creative process and practice and and what that's like. And you know, very obviously, religious experience and spiritual experience. And I'm yep. trying to find a way not to make an argument about what these three things might have in common because that's been done yeah. but just quite a personal rumination on yeah. how those different ingredients have shaped me yeah do you cons- oh, don't have to answer this okay. I don't want to but it's just because you mentioned it yes do you consider yourself religious no I don't think so I don't um, no I don't go to church I am culturally Mormon mm-hmm. in that I was brought up and bred in a very devout Mormon community 
but no, I wouldn't describe myself as a Christian mm-hmm. or as a theist, but mm-hmm. I am curious and open-minded. Mm. Yeah, my family are Mormons. Mm. As well. We well, have this in common. Yes, <laughs> I say my family are Mormons. My great-grandfather was some big, fancy, like huge, because I I, it's quite what hierarchical. What's his name? Oh, his, his surname. This could have been my surname. Okay. If, if my grandparents had Reensbottom, Wow. That could have been my surname. Crikey. Yeah. That's but a name so- to conjure with. I know. Thank... Like, you know, whenever <laughs> I think... When, yeah. <laughs> when, uh, yeah, that's one way to look at it. Um, when I think about how... Like, cause, I mean, my surname is weird anyway, but when I think that it could have been Reamsbottom, uh, I just think, thank God it wasn't. But anyway, he was some guy... <laughs> that would have made for some interesting school days. Uh, terrible. Ter- I mean, my school days were terrible as it was. I can only imagine if it was... Reams bottom as well. Terrible. Anyway, <laughs> uh, he's. <laughs> but it, I think I'm gonna giggle now. The thing is, it, it's like, yeah, you can't. It, it's it's even worse than. I can't think of a worse last name than that. But anyway, yeah, that's. I don't, Are you setting me a challenge? Yeah. Okay. Let me give it some thought. Right. We'll come back to it. <laughs> anyway, he was Salt Lake City yes. based there. He's in some because it's quite the Mormon Church is quite hierarchical. Hierarchical, isn't it? And it's very it there's lots. It's very ranking once you get into the and then you know certain you have to be at certain ranks where you can go to different parts of the churches and. Uh, I think in those. some ways it is very hierarchical, but mm-hmm. in other ways there is a lay clergy and everyone takes a turn. Well, if you're a man, everyone yeah. takes a turn at that, yeah. and you're called. It's not a full-time paid job, as yep. it is in other denominations. And they have a, a really long history of the narration of personal experience being part of worship. They have a testimony meeting, and people get up and talk about their own interpretations, their own experiences. Mm-hmm. So, absolutely, there is um, a very patriarchal, very established mm-hmm. system of power yeah in my opinion well yes. massively well yes. I mean and, and that manifests itself with Kate Kelly yes. obviously yes um, you know this is and this is one of my I'm glad you said you're not religious because then I can actually tell you what I think <laughs> but um, uh, you get it off your chest yeah well. this it really it's just that they get you especially the smaller kind of niche religions like Mormonism yeah. I put Jehovah's Witnesses in kind of yeah. the same boat yeah and you can feel free to disagree but I the problem is because they wrap your religion up with your family mm-hmm. if you when they excommunicate you mm-hmm. you don't just lose your religion you lose your family mm-hmm. as well because they're still in the religion and it's it, maybe not so much as, as Mormonism but as, as Jehovah's Witnesses mm-hmm. but in, you know you can you lose everything mm-hmm. if you give up your religion or you can do I think I think Mormons have a real spectrum of experiences right. on that. Yeah. I think very definitely there are Mormons, especially um, gay Mormons, who are ostracised from their faith communities yeah. and from their families. But and I mean, the, the trauma is a wound, terrible. absolutely. Yeah. And there are other families where it's kind of just one other thing that you don't talk about at Sunday dinner yeah. and that's pretty normal yeah. that you don't talk to your family about everything that, that yeah. goes on in your life so there is a spectrum I think that certainly for people living in in Salt Lake in the Mormon Corridor in Provo and in those places it's yeah. very very difficult it's extremely difficult for um, gay, lesbian, transgender Mormons especially right now I think it's very difficult for outspoken feminists yeah um, Definitely. Yeah, but then that's not been my experience. Yeah. And I think perhaps that's partly to do with my British I was just, as well. you took it's, the words right yeah, out of my mouth. Yeah, it's yeah. a different community yeah. that in the Northwest there is a big Mormon community, but it's a minority community and, you know, it's yeah. just not possible to not talk to people who aren't yeah. Mormons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's not. <laughs> Our, uh, I shouldn't ask you this question after such a great and well-made point, serious point. But our Brit- <laughs> I'm not even asking. No, yes, go I'm on, go on. Ask. Our, our British Mormons is good. Why are why do they like basketball so much? <laughs> I have no idea. I, do you mean British Mormons? All like, Mormons. Okay. Back home, whenever we played basketball, and I want to say we, like I actually played, my school mm-hmm. played like a Mormon. They got got absolutely destroyed. I don't know what it is about them. Every Mormon Clean I've living. ever met. Yeah, I they guess it is. They don't smoke. Yeah. They don't drink. Yeah. They get up early. Yeah. They look after their bodies. Yeah. Maybe they, God wants them to win. Yeah, and they got their magic underwear to protect them as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing, I, oh, I, this is another thing. I'm only asking you this because it's in your book, and 
in the last podcast when I talked to Joe Bell, mm-hmm. he came up there as well. Ovid. Yes. This book is based loosely yes. on an Ovid story. Yes, it is. Um, on Bastus and Philemon. Which that is, I'm completely, totally un... Okay, you, I, will, you will know the story right, because okay. it is shaped so much of our culture. Okay. Um, so this is the story of an old couple and they were poor and they were in love and Zeus and Hermes came in disguise as travellers and they were given hospitality and they kind of, because of their hospitality that they received, they did a bit of a magic trick so the mm. food didn't run out mm. and you'll see bits of this in the book if you, oh, you'll see little yeah. nods to things not running out when they, yeah. when they should Right. and as a reward for this hospitality, the gods, the angels in disguise mm. revealed themselves and said, you know, what do you want, what can we, what can we do? Mm-hmm. And what they got was they asked to die at the same time. They didn't want oh, to be apart. Wow. Is, this, is, is this the... Couple? Oh, I, I might have to take this out of the podcast, actually, because that's a good spoiler, isn't it? And, well, I mean, it is a... So they asked, they asked to, <laughs> to be together, and so they were turned into trees, mm-hmm. and their house was turned into a temple, oh, and nice. the landscape around the house was flooded, Yeah. and the only thing that remained was their house and the trees. Right, and so I, that's why they're chopping the trees down and the water's coming in. Ah, okay, and it's I, a, I think it's a very beautiful story, mm. and I also think it's a very haunting story. Kind of mm-hmm. be careful what you wish for. Yeah. There's a part in the Ovid where that you see them actually transforming into trees, and they're trying to talk to each other, and bark is growing over their mouths, mm. and they're trying to touch each other, and suddenly they've no longer hands. And wow. Something really sad about it. And that hospitality myth, that idea that you know we should be kind to strangers because mm-hmm. not because we should be kind to strangers but because maybe they're gods and they could yeah. give us something they could give us a treat you yeah. know we're never going to know what we get so yeah. so How disappointing when it yeah when it when it doesn't happen <laughs> yeah. you know altruism as a bit of a veneer for mm. self-interest or yeah yeah I don't know so very Thatcher like <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah well it's a, it's a it's a weird story and yeah. I think a lot of writers have been enraptured by Ovid's metamorphosis because they're all about transformation and that's what writing is it's yeah. kind of transforming something into something else yeah well that it's official I have to read Ovid now you do because you do you do you do yeah. everyone should yeah if you have to choose between reading anything of mine or Ovid read Ovid definitely. really well that's yes. not good I just don't <laughs> believe that for a minute um, it's time for another I know you well question okay. that has nothing to do with your book I'm ready um, I know that you quite like Stephen King. I do. Uh, I was less, I couldn't sleep the other night, and I was listening to the audio book of it, mm. which didn't help. It's the first book. That's the first first one I read. Was it? Yeah. What do you think of it? Well, I, I was absolutely enraptured. It's weird, though, isn't it? Yeah. The bit that they kind of all have to have sex with Beverly yeah. in order to save the world. Terrible. She has to put yeah. out, otherwise. Yeah. That's it. The world is, is yeah. and she's totally okay with it somehow. It's it's <laughs> and the, she's a child. Yeah, yeah. I, I am troubled. It is it is horrifying. I read that book when I was twelve. Oh. Yeah, a thousand pages of that. It's about as big as Infinite Jest, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I know. That, that says everything, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, what's your favorite Stephen King novel? Have you have you braved the Dark Tower series? No, I haven't read any of those. Mm. I'm not proper. I can't be a proper Stephen King fan. I don't think you can. My favourite Stephen King is The Stand. It's my least favourite. Really? Yeah. And I like the I like Misery, but I would. Misery is fantastic. I would yeah. like Misery is, is is probably probably my favourite one. No, The Stand. I definitely like The Stand more than Misery. I like yeah. how big his books are. The Stand is a very religious book. Yes, massively. Did you read the one where, like the original one, or the one he re-released later that's even longer? I read, yeah. No, you read, read the even longer yeah, one? Yeah, the, oh, the uncut. You're a masochist. <laughs> I read it when I'm sick as well. Yeah. In fact, I was looking at it fairly recently because I recently have been sick, and mm. there's something about being a little bit feverish and being tucked up in bed with a book that is full of people dying yeah. of flu yeah <laughs> I find it comforting <laughs> it's not just me <laughs> exactly oh you know at least you've not got Captain Trips yeah <laughs> yeah um 
I'm going to ask you this last question because this is my other thing that I know about you. Okay. Is that you're very sweary. I am. And I, I know am. this is... I know I've, I've held it down here. It's I know. been good. And I know this is a book tour type interview. Yeah. But I'm going to finish it in a very James Lipton... Uh, do you know James Lipton? Lipton? The guy from uh, Inside the Actor's Studio. Okay. He's an absolute knob. Okay. And the, the interviews are terrible. So are you going to now be an absolute knob? No, I'm going to ask you the one question you always ask okay. to the people. And I'm all, I only ask it to you because I know. And it's, okay. it's, what's your favorite swear word? Motherfucker. It's the best one. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely, without shadow of a doubt. Yeah. It's better... I do think we say it better than you guys no, do. No, you're right. Yeah. You're right. And it's, it, it's, it's my go-to when I stub my toe. Just motherfucker. Like, it's just... It's the best one. There is no better one. I think bastard is a pretty good word. <laughs> that's a bit. That's better in an English accent. I think, and it's better in a northern accent yeah. as well. Bastard, yeah. It is. It really is. Yeah, it's, it's football matches. It's very good. Because <laughs> <laughs> then it's full of bastards. But anyway, there's never an occasion that isn't improved by swearing. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, that's it. Oh, good. I got to share my best word before Yay. we finish. Well, thank you. Hi. Me again. Uh, should I tell you who won the tennis? I would, except I don't actually know yet because I am I, I'm recording this straight after the intro. Does it sound natural, like time has actually passed? This is literally three seconds after I read the intro, and yet to you it's been, what, 40 minutes? And all of it, the whole thing in the recent past. This is, I'm coming to you from the past. Except the interview, which is not even the recent past, it was done months before I'm reading this. Um, perhaps you're listening to this podcast in 2017 or 2096, and humanity as we know it has perished, or at the very least, we've all become impoverished humans living underwater. Even if you're an early adopter and you are actually listening to this on Monday as the podcast is released, this is still in the past, or even Sunday night. Even if it's tonight for you Cheeky subscribers when I upload this, uh, before I advertise it to the masses, and I say masses, the you know, couple hundred people that listen to this, um, you already know who won the tennis. I'm talking to you in the future. And here I am waiting for it to start in an hour and a half time, eh? I'm going to be taking a holiday from the podcast now, or I'll come back to you in September. I'm actually going to be doing some actual writing now on my actual novel because all of the taught bits for my MA are now complete and I'm bang on for a distinction so I have to make sure that my dissertation is good so that I come away with a, a decent mark because that's the sort of thing that matters to old people who go back to school um, plus you know my dissertation is actually my novel so I want it to be good even though it will never be published uh, the podcast when it does come back in September is probably going to have a slightly different format um, it's going to be more me and less interview because that is literally what everyone who's gotten back to me about this podcast is saying the interviews are too long and there's not enough me which I mean it's flattering but it means I gotta do a fuck ton more work which is Annoying, but I guess okay. Does that sound really, like, pretentious or arrogant? It does, doesn't it? Why, I, I'm, why am I even talking about that? Um, I'm also playing with the idea of not just having a guest, guest to interview, but also having someone come on in the extended intro to talk about stuff that's happening. Maybe I'll have the same person on every time. Uh, Kate Feld, I know I've mentioned this a few times, will be on talking about the Manchester Literature Festival in the next one as well. And uh, maybe, well, I don't know, maybe we'll make that a regular feature. Uh, me and Kate, or me and someone else. Because then it's less work for me. Um, the next interview is with Stephen McGay. Uh, yes, I figured out how to pronounce his name. Uh, and that's how you pronounce it. We talk about horror. Uh, he's in a death metal band, so we talk about metal, which is great. Uh, and movie making. His novel, Habit, is being made into a movie, which is super cool. Um, it's the dream, man. By the time you listen to that interview, it 
the moon will probably have been released and doing the rounds at the film festivals. Uh, so that's quite exciting as you're listening to that. Um, and uh, yeah, so listen to that one. It's going to be good and it'll be different. And as usual, if you've got anything you want to say about this podcast, email me, comment, Twitter, do all that stuff. And uh, I will see you in September. Uh, now, Jen is going to read a short bit of her novel, and I'm going to go watch the tennis. Bye. He becomes aware of two things. One, the boy has a tiny tattoo, small as a half penny, on his upper arm. And two, Timothy Richardson's friends are laughing at him. Come here, Tim says. Jack steps forward. The light is really terrible now, his eyes and throat dry. The boy's face blurs, a portrait smeared before the paint has dried. A familiar drumbeat starts up at the back of Jack's neck. It makes smart time across his teeth and the fine bones in his nose and around his eyes. It's the sun, Tim says, and grabs Jack's face, roughly. For a brief moment, two or three seconds at the most, Tim's fingers are pressing into his right cheek, his thumb into his left. He can smell the salt water on the boy's skin, feel the coolness of his palm against his nose. The heat and light and the pain in his head subside and a vibration starts in his chest. A little thrum downwards across his belly and upper thighs. Tim takes his hand away. Will that do you? He grins. 